got a new man back there, so I got to make sure he's on top of it. Hey, um, also want to remind uh, ladies, we need some volunteers to help with the uh, serving of the lunch on Friday. And men, if there's any men volunteers, I'm sure you could help us as well with helping find parking places for people. And then on Wednesday night, we'll need some muscles to move some chairs and tables and so forth uh, uh, because we're expecting a pretty good crowd here on Friday. So uh, appreciate any help uh, you folks can give us. Take your Bibles this evening, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews, uh, the second chapter. And we want to continue our study in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 5 through the conclusion of the chapter then tonight. We'll get to verse 5, but I want to start by uh, having you note verse 10. Verse 10 says, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. You to notice that title there, an interesting title, the captain of their salvation. The word captain means author or pioneer, leader. It refers to one who blazes the trail, one who leads the way. Uh, it's found only four times in the scripture, and in addition here, uh, it's translated uh, author in Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 2, it's the same word, the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, And uh, then it's also translated prince twice in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 5. And it indicates one who is a prince or a leader. And that's a fitting title for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not the first time that it appears in Scripture in this capacity of course, as a captain. One very significant occasion was when he manifested himself to Joshua in the Old Testament. Now, having just entered the promised land after 40 years of wilderness wanderings and facing their most formidable foe in conquest of that country, the scripture tells us, and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against with us, his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, I believe there's little doubt here that the captain of the Lord's host was Uh, who materialized here before Joshua, was a theophany, that is, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, He wasn't just a mere angel. 
And as we've already studied uh, his superiority over angels, we noted that whenever a mere man attempted to worship an angel, he was rebuked and he was told to worship God alone, not to worship angels. And yet when Joshua fell on his face to worship the captain of the Lord's host, he didn't, he wasn't stopped. And he was told to remove his shoes because the ground where he stood was holy. And so we know that that was the Lord himself, not just an angel. Now this is, uh, on this, uh, idea here, we want to build our thoughts from this passage in, in Hebrews around two words, person and perfecting. Notice, first of all, the person of our captain through incarnation. The person of our captain through incarnation. This will be seen here in verses 5 through 8. And here we find his deity. Here is deity in human form. Uh, Here is one made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, but who is far superior to them. And how do we know that? Well, notice, first of all, angels will not have authority in the world to come. Angels will not have authority in the world to come. Verse 5, notice there it says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Uh, The world to come is literally the inhabited earth, or perhaps more to the point, the inhabitable world to come. Uh, It's described in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 as the dispensation of the fullness of time. It is the age when Christ, as both son of David and son of God, will rule and reign over the nations with a rod of iron, according to the book of Revelations. Uh, His Knowledge will fill the earth as the waters now cover the sea, according to the book of Isaiah. Even Jerusalem will know the world over, uh, will be known as the world over as the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Uh, Peter spoke of it in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. He said, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And it will be a day when swords will be beaten into plowshares, uh, spears into pruning hooks, and war will be uh, learned no more by the nations. A time, uh, a time when the will of God shall be done as completely on earth as it is done in heaven. It'll be true, the true millennial age, an occasion when the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And only then will we have the new world order that so many politicians and humanists and liberals are talking about today in such glowing terms. That's the only time that new world order is going to be in existence. Now they can talk about it all they want, but it's not going to take place until that day when Jesus Christ rules and reigns here on earth. Now, the thought is a continuation, of course, of uh, of one in chapter 1 concerning Christ being better than the angels. And notice the promise of the Father to put the world into subjection as Christ follows the commitment of Psalm 110 and verse 1, which the author quoted in the last chapter when he said, Sit on my right hand until I make mine enemies thy footstool. And since Hebrews chapter 2 And verses 1 through 4 is parenthetical. 
You will read the last two chapters of chapter or last two verses of chapter one. And then if you skip down here to verse five, the continuity, I think, was clear. It says in verse 13 in chapter one, but to which the angel said he at any time sit on my right hand until I make my enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? If you go down to verse five, for unto the angels hath he not put into subjection the world to come whereof I, uh, we speak. Now, that doesn't mean we uh, we leave out or that verses 1 through 4 are not important, but they certainly are because we saw that last week, how important they are in talking about our great salvation. But they're kind of like a parenthesis there. And so now we're continuing the thought that came in chapter 1. Angels will not have authority in the world to come. Secondly, uh, the incarnation of God as the Son of Man. Verse 6 and 7. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou art, thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Now, if you know anything about the Psalms, you recognize those words, don't you? The writer, in order to give God all the glory, does not name the source of the quotation of the Old Testament, but he says, one in a certain place testified. Uh, These verses are actually quotations from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8. Uh, It's also very interesting to note that the verse just previous to those that are quoted was a declaration of creation. In Psalm 8, verse 3, it says, When I considered thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. And when then brought face to face with the greatness of God's grace, then he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And then he quotes the psalmist by saying, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. That is clearly speaking of the incarnation. That is Jesus, the Son of God, becoming a man just long enough for the suffering of death. He is today, of course, no longer lower than the angels. He was lower than the angels for a little while. And the writer here is restating what John declared in his gospel. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, uh, full of grace and truth. And notice later here in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit led the writer to say something very similar. Look down in verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14. For as, for as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him, that the power of death, that is, the devil. Now how did he make, uh, he make him a little lower than the angels for a little while? Well, by causing him to enter fully into man's physical limitations. For example, example, we read that he being wearied with his journey. We read that in, uh, he sat there at Jacob's well. We read that in John chapter 4 verse 6. And then in Mark 4 38, we find him asleep in the stern of the boat after a long difficult day. He got tired just like you and I do. Uh, we read that he hungered. Oh, he got hungry as well in Luke chapter 4 and verse 2. And then on the cross, we read, he said, I thirst. In John 19 and verse 28. But you know what? You never read in the scripture of angels getting tired. 
angels getting sleepy, hungry and thirsting, or entering into man's other human frailties, but Jesus did. He also was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, while in order to experience the suffering of death, that he might destroy the power of the devil, as we saw there in verse 14. And by his own ready, eager willingness in the full submission, accordance to the Father's will, he became subject to that which angels as spirit beings never experienced, that is, death. Never read about angels dying. And even in his humanity, death had not a legitimate claim on him since death is a fruit of sin and Jesus had never sinned. No, uh, not even once did he fail to perfectly fulfill either the Father's will or the law of Moses. And so again, he was made a little lower than the angels for a little while that he might be subjected to temptation and emerge victorious. God cannot be tempted with evil, so he became a man in order to be tempted of Satan through hunger and worship based on power and glory and tempting God through self-glorifying miracles plus every other satanic method known to man. And after he had successfully withstood every assault that Satan and his cohorts could bring against him over that 40 days and 40 nights, we're told in Matthew 4 and verse 11, Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. The creator of angels, the one that was better than angels, was cared for and ministered to by them because he had temporarily, for a little while, been made a little lower than the angels. So we see the angels will not have authority in the world to come. Uh, The incarnation of God as the Son of Man. And then thirdly, we see the authority of the incarnate Son of Man. Verse 8. Verse 8 says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Here we uh, we are speaking of the authority of the incarnate Son of Man in the world to come. Verse 8 is obviously a reference to the world to come because it says here, Now we see not yet all things put under him. And the promise in the opening chapter about the Father making his enemies his footstool back in chapter 1 verse 13 has not yet been fulfilled. He is the heir of all things, chapter 1 verse 2, but he has not received them all yet since the whole world lieth in wickedness, 1 John five nineteen. And so God created man, as the opening chapters of Genesis assures us to be the ruler of the earth, and the representative God here below, and the things, all things were to be in subjection to him. We see in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and all over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And man failed. And though sin, and through sin, he lost the power and the authority invested in him by God. And that was the bad news. But the good news is that the kingship lost by the first Adam's iniquity and rebellion was restored and given to the last Adam, the one called the Son of Man. 
And looking toward the final triumph, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 27 and 28, For he hath put all things under his feet, and when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son of Man also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And then in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, we read and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And so we see the person of the captain of our salvation. We see the person through incarnation. Now, the other truth I said we were going to look at is the perfecting of our captain through suffering. The perfecting of our captain through suffering. This is really the thought that covers the remainder of this chapter. And I think it's very important for us to notice here that when we talk about him being perfected, it is the saviorhood of our Lord under consideration, not his character. You see, as the Son of Man, there was never any imperfection about him in any form, shape, or manner. He was perfect. There was no spot on him. There was no blemish in him. And yet here it talks about the perfecting of our captain. His perfect life could never, now listen to this, his perfect life could never save a sinner. His perfect life could not save a sinner. To be the Savior, he had to suffer death in order to provide the perfect, so great salvation. That's why he spoke of his perishing as being perfected in Luke chapter 13, verse 31, where it says, The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell the fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Here the perfect one is going to be perfected. And he said, it goes on to say, Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that the prophet perish out of Jerusalem. To, to lead many sons of God to glory, it's necessary that the road take him by the way of Gethsemane and Golgotha. Now, in the perfecting of our captain through suffering, now I want you to notice seven things in this passage that involve Christ being perfected. Number one is to taste death for every man. We see that in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now, what did he taste in death? Notice there's four things there. He tasted the curse, which sin brings. 1 Corinthians 15.56 tells us the sting of death is sin. 
And although he was perfect, he was pure, spotless, sinless, holy, without blemish, sanctified in every aspect of his life. It was necessary that he give his life a sacrifice for many. So he tasted the curse which sin brings. Secondly, he tasted the penalty of the broken law. 1 Corinthians 15.56 tells us the strength of sin is the law. The law hath no power to deliver, only to condemn. To become the Savior, he had to take upon himself its full penalty. And although he was uh, made under the law, lived under it, fulfilled it, delighted in it, never broke one jot or tittle of it, he was required to pay the price for all of our failures in order to redeem us. And that's why Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So he tasted the penalty of the broken law. Thirdly, he tasted the manifestation of the power of the devil. It is the devil, the Satan, that has the power of death in his hand. That's what verse 14 clearly tells us. It's part of the devil's realm. And in our Lord's case, it's a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, where God assured Satan that thou shalt bruise his heel. The humiliation was required in spite of the face that he had always, uh, already, in, in spite of the fact that he had already triumphed over Satan and never at any time during his earthly ministry yielded to his will or been captive to his power. He tasted the manifestation of the power of the devil. And then fourthly, he tasted the expression of God's wrath. This is a reference to the wrath of Almighty, which justly abides upon all unsaved sinners. The wrath that the Savior was required to take upon himself through the suffering and death. Spiritual death is being forsaken by God. It is being left without God. It is being abandoned by him. It is hell in all of its horrible, terrible fullness. Christ was made a curse for us, left alone in the power of darkness to provide so great salvation. And so no wonder he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, I want you to notice the assurance in our text that in his trip to Calvary, he tasted death by the grace of God. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 expresses this. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What a declaration of infinite love. Christ at Calvary proved to the angels and to men and to the demons, to heaven, to earth, to hell, God's love for sinners. And Romans 5, 8 says... But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. Christ died for us, even though we didn't deserve it. Calvary is sufficient for every sin of every sinner. And when he tasted death for every man, that included Judas Iscariot. That included John Dillinger. That included Al Capone, that included Adolf Hitler, that included Saddam Hussein, that included Osama bin Laden, and all the other madmen of the his of history. 
Yes, they rejected his atonement. But that doesn't void the fact that the provision for them had been made. They could have been saved if they had received the gift of salvation. No one was excluded by that so great salvation. His sacrifice was sufficient for all. And to make it even more personal as God has intended, Christ tasted death for you and for me. He fixed it up that you would miss hell. No matter how wicked or sinful you may have been or how evil you may be now, will you accept what he's done on your behalf? Thank the Lord for that. The perfecting of our captain through suffering to taste death for every man. Secondly, to bring many sons into glory. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Many other scriptures speak of this glory and they come to mind here. I've listed some of them for you. John eleven forty. Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Romans 5, 2, by whom we also we have access by faith into his, this grace, wherein ye stand and rejoice in hope and of glory of God. Romans 8 and verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Colossians 1 and verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He went to the cross in order to bring us into this, his very presence, this one who dwells in light, unapproachable, the one who said to a human as righteous as Moses, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Sin separates, the death of Christ unites. And that leads us to a third point in this section, perfecting of our captain through suffering to unite us with himself. Verse 11. For both he that sanctified and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Sanctification is not just the removal of defilement, the purging of or eradication of our sin. I believe there's an aspect of sanctification that includes that. But listen, Listen to John chapter 17, verse 17, where Christ in his high priestly prayer said uh, to the Father, he said, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And then he went on in verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also be sanctified through the truth. Now, when would Christ be speaking of sanctifying himself as he's speaking of removing defilement and purging himself of iniquity? Well, certainly not, because he was perfect. He had no iniquity. He had no defilement. And so here the word sanctify means to set apart unto God. And that's usually in regards to his service. But now certainly being set apart unto God involves 
for sinful man, the putting away of sin and defilement, but not for Jesus Christ. He knew no sin. In Christ's case, it was a setting apart of himself as a sacrifice of Calvary for our sins. And so we're talking more here of a consecration rather than a purification or a position, not a condition. Turn, hold your place there and look back just in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. Hebrews 10.10 says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting uh, till his uh, enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now, in thinking of this consecration, I cannot help but think of the wonderful hymn that we often sing by Francis Ridley Havergal, Take My Life. Sometimes we call it Take My Life and Let It Be. We have in our, in our hymn book this same song in two places, two different tunes. In one place, it's, it's entitled Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated. In the other one, it's a little bit different arranged, but it's called the Consecration Hymn. But Miss Havergal had been visiting in the home where ten people were residing, all of whom were either unconverted or defeated in their Christian lives. And on their first day, she begged God to give her all ten and continued to pray and witness until by the time of her short five-day stay was over, she had won them all. And that night, February the 4th, 1874, she was so happy she could not sleep. Sitting down at her writing desk, the couplets began to flood her mind one after another. And some years later, she found her notes and was stirred by her own lines. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And so she gathered up all her jewelry, all the items that long were precious to her, and she sent them off to her uh, denomination's missionary house to be sold for evangelizing lost people in other lands. And about 50 or so of those items, she uh, passionately declared, I don't think I've ever packed a box with more pleasure. She was willing to give up her most precious possessions for the winning of the lost. And you notice these sons of God in verse 11 are all of one, indicating their union with Christ. This fulfills the Lord's prayer prior to the cross, has nothing to do with the so-called unity of the ecumenical movement today. But it has everything to do with our union with Christ, our oneness with Christ. Notice Fourthly, to declare us as his brethren and his children. Verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Verse 12 is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 22. 
The writer quotes here. I, I want you to note how literally it was fulfilled immediately after his death and resurrection. The very first person Jesus appeared to after his triumph over the grave was Mary Magdalene. And she was told, go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. John 20 and verse 17. He said, go to my brethren. And yet he not only calls them brethren, he joins them in the assembly singing praise to the heavenly father. And I want us to focus on that wonderful truth here that we become children of God only by faith on the ground of Christ's suffering through death. Jesus made the necessity of regeneration clear when talking to people who were highly religious but not born again, saying, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. In John 8 and verse 44. And yet he was marvelously transformed through grace, the children of Satan, into brethren and children of God. What a wonderful salvation we have. Transforming children of Satan into children of God. Fifthly, to destroy him that hath the power of death. Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, and through death might destroy him that the power of death, that is of the, uh, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now the word here in verse uh, 14, destroy, means to make of none effect. Satan is very much alive today. Uh, In fact, he's disgustingly healthy. (laughs) Not only so, he will exist forever and ever, but the Lord hath taken much of his power from him, and he has bruised his head. Without Christ, we are under the power of darkness. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And this is because Romans 6.16 reminds us, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to obey, uh, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of, of obedience unto righteousness. One aspect of salvation is that we receive a new master. And when we accept Christ as our Savior, as our Lord and our Savior, we're freed from Satan's power and his bondage. we brought into the liberty of the children of God. That's why Jesus said, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. It's a deliverance that has been made possible only by his suffering on the cross. And thanks to Calvary, in Christ there is neither guilt, nor bondage, nor fear. Number six, to become our merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to me be made like unto his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So to carry out this, he must make propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, That's the part of the high priest duties. Uh, We'll find it when we get to chapter 5 and verse 1, 
where it says, For every high priest taken among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. You know, all priests until the time of Christ were required to make sacrifices again and again and again and again, over and over. And then Jesus permanently fulfilled the making atonement. And we see that in in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, where it says, For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Again, the accomplishment of this requirement was by the suffering of death. Nothing short of this, nothing less than this can do. Finally, rounding out this sevenfold perfection attaining through, attained through suffering, it was to deliver us from the power of temptation. Verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Defeating Satan on the cross was not enough. If we're going to have victory in our personal lives, we need daily help from him. I want you to notice the expression here. He suffered being tempted. He was suffer- It was suffering for him to be tempted. His nature was holy. His character was pure. Uh, he loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. Billy Sunday said that after his conversion, an elderly saint told him, Bill, if you follow three simple rules I'm going to give you, you'll never backslide. First, listen to God talk for 15 minutes a day. In other words, read your Bible. And second, talk to God for 15 days. In other words, pray. And thirdly, talk to others about God for at least 15 minutes a day. That is, in other words, witness. It was good advice, and this ex-baseball player vowed to follow it, And you and I would do well to pursue the same plan. Another point to note is that temptation is suffering only when resisted. Those who succumb uh, do not suffer, they enjoy it. The suffering in those times uh, uh, comes after, uh, after the fact, the fruit of the sin. It's also important to notice perhaps that he did not die to deliver us from temptation but from the power of temptation. He opened for us the door of escape. The word succor here means to run at a call for help. Because he gained the victory on the cross, he is able to succor, to help, to assist when we are tempted. And wonder of wonders, we call, and Almighty God comes running. We'll see this in Hebrews 4, verse 15. It says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. He's always ready. He's always eager to help us. One man told how a godly preacher advised him as a youth, This preacher said, son, when in trouble, kneel down and ask God's help, but never climb over the fence into the devil's ground and then kneel down. Always pray from the God side of the fence. I think that's good advice too. 
That was good advice then. It's still good advice now. Don't get into the devil's territory and then kneel down and pray. Stay on God's side of the fence and pray. Listen, this is this great God is a great Savior. And tonight I trust everyone here tonight can say that you're one of the sons or daughters that is bringing him into uh, being brought into glory. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Believe on the name, receive him. If you've done that, I wonder tonight, are you trusting him to help you when you're tempted and when you're in trouble? We have a great God who's provided us so great a salvation, not just for heaven, but for here on earth. Jesus may come tonight or he may come tomorrow, but he may not come for a week or two weeks or several years. What are we going to do? Well, we have his help when we're tempted. What a wonderful Savior we have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you tonight for this great passage speaking of the captain of our salvation and lord we pray that uh, we will call upon his name when we are tempted and we will seek his help we're in when, when we're in trouble lord we pray that each one here tonight young and old would be uh, certain of their salvation tonight and if not they would come to know him before it's too late. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.